My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? My uncle abused me. The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Morning. I'm Mandy Zucker, host of The Morning Meeting. Today, for our final episode of the season, I'm talking with Melissa Lunardini. She's the founder and CEO of Radical Grief Consulting. It's an organization that enhances healthcare professionals and educators' understanding of childhood grief and loss and provides them with evidence-based interventions to reduce maladaptive behaviors. I'm talking with Melissa today because we have talked a whole bunch about how people frequently ask us how we do the work that we do working with so many bereaved people and still take care of ourselves. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Melissa and I are going to talk about how we do that, how we uh, make sure that we're not burning out and the big and small ways that we take good care of our own mental health so that we can continue to do the work that we love. Melissa Lunardini, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. I'm so excited to be here. I thought you were a perfect guest because we we talk about this topic a lot and it comes up a lot in both of our work. How do you handle all of this work? Um, you know, we I'll let you talk a little bit about radical grief and what you're working on, but you know, working in this field with bereavement, people ask me all the time, it must be so sad, and how do you do it? And all that kind of stuff. So why don't you just talk a little bit about what you do in this space? And then we'll talk about how we handle what we do. It's funny, I've been fortunate enough to be in two career spaces where people get that question asked to them frequently, which would be in the school system, so the educational system. Prior to me even entering into grief and loss, I was a middle school and high school algebra teacher in a very under-resourced community working with really tough and, and hard kids, not by their own means, but because of the environments that they happen to grow up in. And so I would get that question all the time. Gosh, you know, you're, you're so heroic being a teacher day in and day out. And, you know, you, you then kind of do a head nod and go, really, is, is the work that I'm doing and showing up for every day considered heroic or is or is it just the work that as a society, somebody has to step in and do and what an honor it is that I get to do it, right? Um, and then move into grief and loss, which felt like when I first entered into that industry, I felt so um, underprepared, meaning that I was able to work with children who had a variety of different traumas in their background, but then to sit with grieving children and hear them open up and be so raw and vulnerable about their experience in a very authentic and honest and transparent way, I was just like, oh my gosh, if I can do this forever, this is what I would like to do. And, and then with that came the questions, how do you do this day in and day out? And it's really funny because I think helpers rarely ask ourselves that question. How are we doing this day in and day out? To us, we feel we view it as like a privilege and an honor to be able to kind of companion somebody through the darkest points in their life narrative to date. And so 
it's kind of one of those things that it's not until you learn about secondary trauma or compassion fatigue that you then start asking yourself, well, why don't I ask myself these questions? How does it actually come so easily for others, but not so easy for us to do an inventory and ask ourselves that question? And I, I think it's because we as helpers get so much out of helping others that when we talk about like the importance of filling up your cup, part of the actual work does fill up our cup. Um, and so for the first time I walked into the space of bereavement, I was asked to run a children's grief program for eight weeks and I had no idea what I was doing, but I thought, well, I, I work with kids, so I'll try it. And I walked away. I mean, I remember walking into my house that night, my father was standing in the kitchen and I was just like, I think my whole life just changed. Like it felt so good to, to witness and to be there and to feel. And also, I mean, you know, they were so appreciative, the kids, as well as their families were so appreciative of the work that we were doing. And I had worked in different environments, schools where I didn't always get that appreciation. So that felt really good too, as difficult and painful as it was to hear their stories they were like, thank you so much for, for being here, for creating this, you know, that, that, that's a bit of self-care right there. It really is. And it, I think for young professionals in particular, we actually can sort of, in an essence, get high off of that and then really lean on that being the only source of what fills our cup. And I think that is the, the takeaway message that I always try to impart on young professionals that yes, as much as it feels like it fills your cup, it's actually only filling one aspect of your cup. And it's really our responsibility to lean kind of in other areas to do other forms of filling of our cup. So that way we can continue to give because it over time, what we end up getting back from them will always fill our cup in a certain way. But, but what we know is that in addition to the direct work that we do, we're also contending with, you know, advocacy work, we're contending with admin work, we're continuing to like, push the agenda and mission forward in a, in a society that isn't always embracing death literacy as a concept. And so, you know, all of those other areas are also depleting our cups. And so we need to rely on other forms, self-care, if you will, in order to really recharge us for the work that we do, because the direct care, although it does a little, it's never going to be enough because we are expending in other areas as well. I also think there's this, I don't know if it's guilt or, but this this feeling that we're doing such good work. So when it doesn't feel good to even admit to ourselves that sometimes it doesn't feel good. Sometimes, you know, even really great people that we're working with and great families and, um, you know, the good work that we're doing, some days I'm just having a bad day and I don't want to go to work today. And it's hard to admit that because we're supposed to be the helpers. So it, sometimes it takes me even a little while for me to like recognize like, oh, you know, I don't actually, I'm not feeling it today. And that, you know, it makes me almost feel like a bad person that I'm not, you know, there for families, but sometimes that happens and it takes a little while for me to recognize it. And that's when I'm like, okay, I think I need to do a little self-care. I need to up my game a little bit because I'm feeling a little depleted. I love that. And Honestly, that example reminds me of like one of my favorite TED Talks 
I'm sure you're familiar with her work. Well, I know you are familiar with her work, her work but maybe audience member listening in may not be, but Laura Vandernoot Lipinski's work from Trauma Stewardship. Uh, she has a wonderful TED talk called Beyond the Cliff. And she talks about how she's using herself as an example, saying how righteousness you can fill in the work that you're doing. And she gives the example of, you know, she used to think, well, I'm doing God's work. So you're either going to help me or you're going to like step off. And I feel like a lot of helpers can really relate to that because we are able then to justify like the workaholic piece of us and then and then also be able to justify all of the negative consequences behaviors or or internal you know somatizations that are accompanying us because we'll say you know we want to like push through that or you know and say like oh well because i'm doing god's work i have to get up and do the work like if i don't do it who's gonna do it right um and that self-righteousness piece is just, it was so interesting to learn about that. And then just be like, gosh, is she talking about me? Like she clearly is talking about me. I'm like, I've, I feel attacked a little here. And then to same, same with the workaholic piece, you know, it's just like, okay, so yes. Am I a workaholic? Absolutely. And it's because, you know, I do, I do fall into that entitlement and righteousness piece of like, well, if I don't show up for work every day, then who's going to do it? And, you know, who's going to serve these families? Because clearly there's nobody other than the 3.5 billion other people on the planet that could step up. And so I can have a day of self-care, you know, and it's just so interesting to, to reflect on that. And, and then, what we learn in order to be in the industry and be sustainable over time is that we have to then step out of that self-righteousness and be like, listen, whoever gets help today or doesn't get help today isn't contingent on my ability to rest. Like I have to be able to rest so that I can continue to make change in my small circle um, of people. And if I don't get that, then, then I am no good. Ethically, I am no good to be able to serve anybody else. And so having that battle just reminds me of not only her TED talk, but also just, I feel like that's, it's that common theme with helpers, professional helpers rather. And I, also, um, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I feel like that's like a real indic indicator for me when I start saying those things. Well, like I'm the only one that could do it. When I start saying that, I know that that means I need to take a break. When I feel like I can't take a break because I'm the only one out there, that's like 100% a sign to me that, Mandy, you need to take a day off or maybe a whole week off. You know, one of the things that I, I, you know, I chose you to have this conversation with because I used to hate that this whole conversation about self-care and burnout. And I used to think self-care meant, you know, a spa day and a vacation. And I found it almost condescending and like just rude because I, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I, you know, I don't have the resources to do some of those things, at least on a regular basis. So telling me to do that made me feel even more stressed out until I really realized that self-care is not, I mean, those are great things and we should all do them if we can, but there are such, you know, there's much smaller things that we can be doing. And you know, you, Melissa, are part of my self-care, which is why I wanted you to be on the show. I remember when my very first job, I was working in a hospice and, you know, really difficult work, right? Constantly dealing with death and, you know, crises. And, and we would have these staff meetings on Thursday mornings and we'd go around this big table and I would say, you know, this patient died 
And then the next sentence from my supervisor would often be, oh, okay, here's your next patient. And it didn't even at the time, I mean, I was just out of school. It didn't cross my mind that anybody should say to me like, oh, well, how are you doing? What was that like? There was none of that. And I didn't, I loved working in hospice. So it wasn't that I thought it was a bad thing. I just don't think anybody realized how important it is to do that. And when I left and went to a different organization where we did do that, I was amazed how like, wow, I feel better about coming to work. And when I started working from home and realized I don't have a lot of that sort of camaraderie, that's when I reached out to you and said, I need that. And can we meet regularly? So now you and I and a few other women meet regularly to kind of just talk about how are we doing? And that's super important for me to make sure that you have like a group of people that kind of, you know, get it. I I couldn't agree more. I think also we were attempting a new phase in our life as young, I'm going to call us young. uh, You're younger than me, but okay professional women really who were trying to make a really good use of the pandemic time really right so then not only are we contending with the uh, environmental stressors that are presenting around the pandemic but then you know for myself I'm trying to start up a brand new consulting business during a pandemic which I have the foresight to know that these services are going to be hugely needed in the upcoming years because that's just the way that grief and trauma work, right? It's so, it's slow moving and cumulative over time. So no matter when the actual events that are traumatic occur, the symptomology or the reactions or the needs for support are going to be more long withstanding. And so for us, we, we, intuitively know that, but then we also just know that from being in grief and loss for so long and and hearing stories that maybe four or five, six years out, they're still in this deep pain of grief. And so for us, we're like, oh, well, we need to just, we need to ramp up our efforts and think about what what our future supportive um, networks going to have to look like in order to meet the demand, because we also know that there's going to be a swell in demand, right? And just the thought of that can feel overwhelming to even the most seasoned professionals, because I would consider us young, but seasoned. Um, And so being able to rely and connect and network with other professionals that have very similar goals really, really, I think for us, grounded us every month, right? It it gave us an opportunity to take a time out of our busy schedule and the stress and then really do an inventory, right? Of Because we that's what we asked each of each other to like show up with an inventory of things that you really want to bring to the space. So it made us kind of sit and reflect and be like, what do I want to bring to this space? And be open then to receiving kind of what other people are doing and the validation potentially that we're hearing from each other as well, which is just, as we know, can be so critical so that we don't feel like we're going off of our rockers in our own spirals, you know, but then we're like, oh, you're joining this ride. Cool. Let's, let's go off our rockers together because, you know, company is always best in positive and in negative scenarios. And so, yeah, I think being able to, in any capacity, any capacity, you know, we know like the highest burnout rates we see are with physicians and nurses and emergency medical responders, social workers, lawyers, 
um, air traffic controllers, right? They have the highest burnout rate. And then you have to just start to ask, like, what is the personality makeup of those people, right? Like, and we all have very similar makeups behind us, right? We, we're probably less likely to reach out for support. You know, we feel like the work that we're doing is righteous. Um, we feel like we're the only ones that can do the work. And so then it then becomes, yeah, a question of like, how do we mitigate the burnout? Well, one of the ways is to find find your tribe, find your group, and then lean on them, even if it's just once a month, like what we've done. So let me ask you, what are some of the things in your work that are the most stressful, most, you know, akin to, to burning you out? Sure. You know, the funny thing is, 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 is I'm most always never going to say the actual people or the stories because I actually feel like I am quite comfortable sitting in distress and working within a, a highly trauma-based, distress-based environment. <laughs> Over time, you you end up learning how to be comfortable in the uncomfortable, right? I think for me, what is the most depleting is the... Um, kind of systemic oppression that we're seeing, right? It's just how broken our systems are. And if we could just start to look at policy and regulation and look at more of that systemic level stuff, it would make the helpers jobs so much easier. You know, the fact that people can't access mental health care in America without selling one of their prized possessions off, you know, in order to pay for it is baffling to me, Um, particularly because unhealthy children will grow up to often be unhealthy working adults. And if we want to pride ourselves on being like highly industrialized as a country, then wouldn't we want to bring up some of the most well-rounded and healthiest humans that we possibly could, because that is then going to be tied to economic success and mental health success and healthcare success. You know, it is a vicious cycle, but the cycle isn't a roots issue. It's a systemic top-down issue, in my opinion. And so, like, to me, the the ongoing advocacy to an empty vortex that, you know, often what it can feel like is the most stressful. It's it's the fact that nonprofits have to not only scour for grants, but then essentially reach out to them so often and itemize everything. And it doesn't even cover a worker. You know, it's the fact, like talk about a broken system and talk about stress inducing. Like there's so many people who want to do good work, but the bureaucracy and the tape that is put in front of them in order to do the work is immense and it is discouraging. I completely agree. I, it is very, you know, you feel like you're doing the the good part. You're right. The part that fills my bucket as well is the actual work, right? Like that direct work with, with the people and the part that's really leading is knowing that this is just one little tiny piece in this bucket. And really, you know, the answers to some of these bigger questions is out there you know, in a much bigger way and it's much harder to address. It really is. And it does, it does take a community swelling, if you will, of voices. And what I always say is like, you know, 
there's a there's actually a really good TED talk and I can't remember who uh, gave it, but she talked about using like a yes and no compass in order to set limits and boundaries for yourself. And I just, I couldn't help but to think that and think of, you know, if everybody were to use their yes and no compass as a way to set boundaries, everybody would then be standing up and doing hard no's on things like uh, that don't benefit the culture, right? We're in, you know, in America, we're a very individualized based culture. And you look into other countries and they're very more, much more collective based culture, which is why many of them offer public health care, for example, because they feel like the most humane thing to do is to give basic health and mental health care, right? And that, that should not necessarily be left up to, you know, individuals to decide. And, and, and America is literally the last of industrialized countries to adopt this idea. And so I think that, you know, this, this whole idea of a compass, the TED talk that I watched it, she basically said like, you know, the best way to answer a lot of your problems is, you know, just by asking yourself a simple yes or no question. And yes or no as is never really tied to feelings it's actually just tied to like you know is this the right or wrong thing for you and it's so simplistic but i i found a lot of value in in that concept because it is easier than for me to say like if somebody's asking me to do a bunch of work um, for free, for example, um, I might then say, you know, do I want to do that work? I, am I feeling like responsible to do that work? But is that free work self-serving to me? And then the answer is going to be no, right? For me, because like internally, I'm like, well, no, it's not self-serving to me. Technically, am I helping other people? And are other people's opinions of me going to be reflected? Yes, but I can't worry about that because in order to set good boundaries for myself, I have to live in my yes and no compass area. And so I feel like part of our responsibility as you know, making sure that we try to set protective factors around us in terms of compassion fatigue and secondary trauma is to listen to that very direct yes or no compass. Like, is this self-serving for me? And you're really putting yourself first as a priority in front of everybody else. That includes like parents in front of children, right? You know, and, and family members and, you know, any other stakeholders, right? It's like, is this going to help me at all? And then, and then we can look at if it's yes, then great. We're able to extend the help out. But if not deplete me in any way, then no. I, I, I feel like, you know, we could have a whole podcast on financials and, you know, the, the self-care involved in getting paid, which it's not, you know, it's, it is self-care, but it's also like a basic need. But I completely agree that when I think about self-care and sometimes I really struggle because somebody will call and ask for support and some education or something and it's good work and I, and I want it to be out there in the world but they can't pay me or they could pay me just a teeny tiny bit. You want to do this good work. And I, I know it, I can do it, right? I have the information and yet it's so depleting. First of all, I mean, it's emotional work. So it's, it's depleting to do this work, but then to do it and not get paid is also really depleting, right? So that I do the work and now I'm hungry at the end of the night. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's, it's important that we make sure, you know, this is a whole other conversation really, but you know, that as a profession that we're getting paid a reasonable salary for the work that we're doing. 
that is, that's basic self-care. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have always put it in the back of my mind that I'm willing to do like a X amount and I put a finite number on it per year of something that is like a free presentation, for example, that is under an hour and it's real basic. I'm able to pull from all of my other materials. So it doesn't require a lot of prep time. And it's kind of like grief 101, no brainer stuff for me anyway. So it's not actually pulling in a ton of reserves other than blocking out about maybe an hour and a half of my time. Um, And I'm willing to do that as a way to contribute to what I would hope that we move towards in the future, which is this more collective mindset of, you know, there is benefit in helping others. However, I don't go beyond that finite number per year. And I do that for a reason because I, I need to also remind myself the same thing. I can't keep giving and still be hungry at the end of the night, which is a great way to put it because it's so true. I know that you and I had many discussions during the pandemic of like, oh, you know, do, do we, you know, offer stuff for free to get our name out? And then do we not do that? Um, you know, there's our country is in immense need of this work and everybody's pulling back on their budget. So like, is it our is that our way of being an essential worker to give back in this capacity and do it for free? And at the end of the day, I think we both kind of landed on, yes, that helps other people, but no, it doesn't help us. And if we follow that yes and no compass, it really does point to no. And then our only job with that compass is to listen to the right answer and not be swayed by other people's opinion, right? And so, and so you and I both were like, no, we're basically charging during the pandemic and, and whoever can afford it can. And, you know, I think both of us do a ton of volunteer work. So, you know, that's important. And the volunteer work that I do sometimes totally different than what I do for work fills my bucket in a different way. So Mm -hmm. I think that's also important. You know, volunteer work, I think is a great way to take good care of yourself. You have to think about what do I want to be doing for my volunteer work different than what I do for my professional. So for me, that's, you know, that's a distinction that I I feel like I need to be making all the time. Yeah. But even in volunteer work, right, there is a giving that is still happening, right? There's still a caring for others that is still happening. And, and much like direct client work, right, an element of it fills our cup. But if we're again, not, I always try to like book in my days with self-care, like really part of my self-care is not waking up super early, like the rest of the world. So because I'm not a morning person, the way that I take care of myself is I try not to start anything and that requires my brain to function until about 10 a.m., which means that I can take as much time in the morning as I need to just take my time, whatever that looks like for me. And then in the evening, I try to either do some form of like quiet meditation or I have a spa, I might go into that or just read a book, whatever it is. But it's really focused on like destimulizing my environment because throughout the day, especially being on a computer and virtual and with your phone and everything, it's just so stimulating that I tried to kind of remove it just for even 10 or 15 minutes and just sit in quietness. Because to me, I feel like there is really something sacred about quietness. And although I will say for maybe trauma survivors, quietness can be activating for them. But if that is not your storyline, and you aren't activated by quietness, but but it does bring you a, pe- a piece of like peace and serenity, then like just sitting in quietness can 
bring in an element of peacefulness, which is recharging. I actually have this practice mostly on Fridays where I'm very slow in the morning. And I, I, I actually like stand in my closet on Friday mornings and look at the clothes and really make a, a much more conscious decision about what I'm going to wear. Like most days I just kind of run in the closet. I grab, you know, what am I doing today? Do I need something nice, whatever, and put it on. And on Fridays, I really think about like, how do I want to feel today? Do I want something soft? Do I want to look elegant? Do I want to look, you know, do I want to just be sloppy? Like, you know, depending on what I'm doing, but I try not to schedule too many big meetings on Fridays. So I, I really try to make this effort on Fridays to, to wear what I feel good in and whatever that means for me that day. And then when I look down at my clothes on Fridays, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm wearing this because I'm, I deserve this, you know, and I remind myself throughout the day and it's not, you know, it doesn't cost any money because I already had the clothes in the closet. It doesn't take any extra time, but it's just this constant reminder throughout the day that, oh, I put this bracelet on because I, you know, this person gave it to me and it makes me feel good. Or I'm wearing my fuzzy slippers today because I wanted that cozy feeling or whatever it is. But that's like one of my practices that I incorporate at least once a week where I, you know, try to remind myself that I'm worthy of of taking good care of myself. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you, what you do is you make a conscious effort to bring in like comfort items into not only on your being, but maybe there's even emotional comfort tied to some of the items that you are choosing for that day, whether it be physical or emotional based um, comfort items, which I think is so huge, right? Like we, I think we undervalue, I think we see value in comfort items when it comes to children. Oh, right. A child is feeling a little upset. Let's go grab him or her, their stuffed animal or their favorite blankie or wrap them in pillows and make sure that they're warm and they have hot chocolate, you know, like comfort items. Yes, completely makes sense. But I think comfort items is a human item, not necessarily an age-based item. And adults really do also value and benefit comfort items as well. And we should be encouraging that more often. You know, it is it is absolutely okay to walk around in your fluffy, hot pink, uh, you know, slip-ons and, you know, mismatching pajamas and, you know, having your favorite tea or coffee and taking your time. It's just, there's something just so recharging about being able to be the real you unfiltered and surrounded by the things that matter most to you. During the pandemic, I remember thinking, I'm not a big coffee drinker, but when I was out working, if I had a really tough meeting or maybe I had responded to a school after a a student had died, I would always stop at Starbucks on the way back and get something, you know, decadent, like with whipped cream on top or something. I started noticing during the pandemic because I wasn't leaving that I didn't have that to, you know, like reward myself for Mm -hmm. a job well done. Um, And I started implementing it again. And like I said, I'm not a big coffee drinker, but occasionally I would just feel like, you know what, I'm going to make sure that I have like a nice drink. It doesn't, I don't even have to go out and get it. Sometimes I did, but sometimes I would just say like, I want delicious tea with honey in it or something. And I would have it on my desk and I would hold the cup and you know, feel warm and remind myself again that like, I'm just, I'm worthy of these things and, and it feels good and, and drink it slowly and really just, you know, take, you know, a few seconds to just to enjoy what I'm doing and be present uh, in that moment. You mentioned two words that I think are so, I think powerful because I I think language can be powerful um, in a lot of ways. 
And so you mentioned reward and then you mentioned worthy. And I wouldn't necessarily make those interchangeable, right? Like the definition wise, they're they're completely different, right? But I do think that we as helpers can get in the mentality that if we do good, we then should get a reward Mm -hmm. versus we do good and we're worthy. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of the shift that is a really healthy mindset shift is to not really attach to this is my reward, but more so lean into I'm worthy and and it's okay for me to have this. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and I'm it's so funny with that, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> but I totally agree. Like, you know, you don't have to wait until you do the hard thing to get the reward. Sometimes, you know, like on Friday mornings, when I put on my fuzzy slippers, like I'm doing that because I am worthy. I haven't done anything. I'm just worthy. And that's sort of the reminder that I need to say that to myself all the time. Like I'm worthy. I didn't do anything. I'm just worthy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I totally agree. I think I I would venture to say that most helpers struggle with that, right? Um, With the idea that they're worthy of their own self-care. You take, for example, because we have worked in, but we both worked in hospice industries for many, many years. And we know that caregiving is a huge component that is probably not necessarily addressed well enough in healthcare settings, because we know so much about how caregivers start to not take care of themselves in an effort to fully take care of others. And particularly if somebody is dying, it then elevates the sense of emergency that you have to be there to care for somebody because their needs are critical and they're outweighing your current needs. But the reality is, is that we also know that caregiving is so arduous and very long and time consuming that if you don't find yourself worthy of taking care of, then there's a good chance that over time, your caregiving abilities are going to decline. And that can look like any resentment that could be building up over time of just not being able to even shower. Because you're interpreting the, the sense of timeliness to you not being able to shower. But the reality is, is like, you have to take care of your own needs first and then take care of somebody else's needs, regardless of the sense of emergency around it. Like I was on the phone the other day with um, a mother who's a, a fairly new mother. She's also a PhD student and also working and a fairly new spouse. And she called me while she was going to the bathroom. And I'm like, are you are you going to the bathroom? And she was just like, I am. I will we'll hang up. And I was like, yes, please, please go to the bathroom before you take a work call. Like you do not have to actually take a work call while you're on the bathroom. Like you deserve the two minutes that you need in order to go to the bathroom before handling work. Yeah. And we, we laughed about it, but then it was just like an, an instant reminder for us that like, again, for whatever reason in her mind in that moment, work felt more pressing than caring for basic needs, like going to the bathroom. Yep. And I just, I'm always just reminded by these stories that we just so willingly and givingly like give up ourselves as a priority in order to assist others. But we do know that the saying is true, right? You, you literally cannot do the work that you're hoping to achieve at its most most ethical and highest level if you're not taking care of yourself first. It reminds me, I mean, I had a very similar thing happen to me. I was 
at working in an office and I was walking to the bathroom and I passed a colleague's office who said, Mandy, can you come in? I need to talk to you about something. Um, and I said, you know, give me a second. I'm just running to the bathroom. And she said, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt your self-care. And I thought, oh my God, like going to the bathroom is now self-care. But then I said, you know what it is? Cause it's four o'clock and I haven't gotten up from my desk to go to the bathroom yet today. And that's not healthy. You know, like we feel like we can't go. We have to like finish the work. And I was like, you know, it is self-care and I'm going to do it more often. I'm going to get up at 1130 every morning and walk over to the bathroom. Um, you know, very basic things. I think, like I said before, self-care is not always the spa day and the big vacations, right? It is everyday things that we should be doing to make sure we're taking good care of ourselves, like biological needs, as well as, uh, you know, making sure you eat lunch, um, all of those kinds of things. Right. Because I mean, what I, I'm pretty sure you've heard this too, or, or some reference to it is that for people who say that they don't have time for self-care, what we know to be true is that your brain and your body doesn't necessarily care about your opinion on if you have time for self-care, because your brain and your body will ultimately be the last voice in that because over time if you neglect your self-care you will then come down with illness and mistakes and injury and burnout and fatigue and exhaustion things that could mirror mental health conditions or be a catalyst for mental health conditions right Um, or exacerbate pre-existing physical and mental health conditions. And so at the end of the day, for those people who are like, I just don't have time, I'm always just like, okay, um, your brain and your body will make time whether you're ready for it or not. So so you can decide if you want to be in alignment with your body and your brain, or if you're going to fight against it. You know, it's that idea of, you know, are you going to be a bestie to your brain and body? Or are you going to be a bully against your brain and body? Either way, your brain and body will outwin you every time, 100% of the time. So you might as well align. It's really, it's really funny because, you know, I think we often listen to the narrative that we put in our head that we should do something or we're not doing enough or you know this this that or whatever whatever the narrative is for that moment um because we often know it can switch and there was another ted talk clearly i love ted talks because i feel like that's what working people listen to at least i'm talking to myself um this woman named uh, Sherry Gilman, she talks about how she's a workaholic. And when she started to set boundaries for herself, for her workaholic self, because she actually personified her workaholic self, she's like, that person's crazy. (laughs) She's legit crazy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my workaholic person is crazy too. Like she is so hard to tame and she is so hard to like walk off And, you know, try to put parameters around and try to tell her to stop doing the work that she does every day or to limit or to put a cap or to walk away and take a break or whatever it is. And, and she pretty much talks about how you just have to have this kind of like these really hard conversations with your workaholic self in order to um, make room for the things that matter most that end up being mitigators to burnout and compassion fatigue, right? So it's, it's like you're um, using your, 
your knowledge and your best judgment, which you know is inevitable, right? When you're in the helping field, like there, we hear about it all the time. You get trained on it. Like compassion fatigue and burnout is very real. And you're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then your workaholic takes over. And then, so it's kind of like the battle of the the two, like people talking, right? Your workaholic self and your compassion fatigue and burnout self. And you're just kind of like trying to figure out who wins. And the idea is, is like, I just loved it because when she was like, my workaholic is crazy. I'm like, my workaholic's crazy too. Like, I feel so validated in that. (laughs) You know, the same person. If people have questions about radical grief, about you, about your own self-care or their self-care, how can they reach out to you? So I'm fairly easy to find, I would say. Um, I can be reached at radicalgrief at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram, radical.grief. Also, um, my website, radicalgrief.org. There is a message component where you can submit and reach out to me there. Fairly easy to find. And I my workaholic self will say she prides herself on responding and replying very quickly to people. Um, my self-care person says she will get to you in a timely manner. Thank you for that. <laughs> and yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my gosh. It is my pleasure. I feel like we always have really great conversation and discussion. And I'm really glad that you picked this topic in particular because it feels so relevant. will continue to be relevant moving forward for sure. As we're moving into the holiday season, I hope people are able to take a little time to take good care of themselves and take some time off if they're able to do that. So it's our call to action, right? Like PTO is there for a reason. Take it. Your breaks are there for a reason. Take them. Boundaries are there for a reason. Set them. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I hope people are able to do that. Thank you for coming on the show again. I so appreciate having Melissa on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. As I mentioned, we're going to take a break. This is the last episode of our season. We will be back on February 1st, 2022. So I hope you all enjoy your holidays and your winter break. And please tune back in on February 1st. If you'd like to get a reminder of that, follow us on Instagram. It's innerharbor underscore grief underscore support. I hope to see you then. Good morning to all of you.